on the last two Sunday evenings, we've been with Jesus in the city of Jericho. And we saw that as he passed through that city, uh, two events are recorded. One in the Gospel of Mark that we looked at, uh, a blind man called Bartimaeus was healed of his blindness. And then in Luke's Gospel, at chapter 19, we read of the tax collector Zacchaeus, who also had a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself explained it simply, yet most profoundly like this. Today, salvation has come to his home. I explained that on that occasion, Jesus was very near the end of a journey that had taken him from the north of Israel southwards down, culminating in his arrival in Jerusalem on what we know today as Palm Sunday. Well, the story that we read from Luke chapter 17 occurred some time before that. Jesus is on that journey from the north to the south, making his way towards Jerusalem, as Luke says in the opening verse of Luke 17, but it's sometime earlier than the events that took place in Jericho. Jesus is still up north, as we would say, in the region of Samaria and Galilee. And I hope to be able to show you this evening that in that encounter that Jesus had with these 10 men who are suffering from leprosy, there are some wonderful spiritual truths which are revealed there for us. So I'd encourage you to have your Bible open at Luke chapter 17 and we'll see what we can learn by God's grace from this passage. We'll begin by considering verses 12 and 13 and we're introduced there to what we might call 10 outcast men. There's a reason why Jesus met these 10 men as he was entering the village. And for the same reason, they are standing far off, requiring them to raise their voices in order for him to hear them. They are lepers. Now, leprosy in the Bible wasn't always necessarily uh, Hansen's disease as we know leprosy today. Uh, leprosy in the Bible could mean that, but it was also a more general term to describe various skin conditions, some of which could have been extremely contagious. And some of them, like leprosy as we know it, very nasty indeed. Now, chapters 13 and 14 in the Old Testament book of Leviticus contain the very detailed instructions which God included in his law given through Moses about how such conditions of the skin should be dealt with. It explains the kinds of 
uh, conditions which must be examined by a priest who was to act, if you like, as a public health officer. And which of those conditions were to be treated as leprous and which were less severe and didn't need such drastic action. Anyone found with leprosy had to be recorded and noted publicly and they were forced into a prolonged isolation outside of the boundaries of their town or village and they had to remain that way for as long as that condition persisted. It may be that the condition uh, healed itself up after a while. It could be that it will go on for years and years. They were forced to leave their home. It would usually mean having to give up their, their livelihood. They wouldn't be able to continue in their normal employment. They'd have to leave their job and their colleagues. They were not permitted to gather with the Lord's people on the Sabbath day to worship with them, either in the temple in Jerusalem or in the local synagogue. Some of you have heard about this for years, and perhaps in the past it's all sounded rather remote. Maybe not so much anymore. With all that's going on around us in the world at the moment, it suddenly sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Social distancing, actually introduced by God in the Bible in order to protect the health of others. For many, this actually would have been a life sentence. They would have lived out the rest of their days in this isolation from the main community. It really was as awful as it sounds. And it was one of the things that people in those days feared the most. Some of you might recall the Old Testament story of a Syrian commander called Naaman. And he caught leprosy. And the story there records how he tried to hide it during the early stages of the disease because he understood how serious the consequences would be once it was discovered and made known. Nothing has changed in the intervening centuries and leprosy still had the stigma in New Testament days that it did back then because of the impact that it would have on your life if that was the diagnosis of the priest. Understandably, people who found themselves in that position quickly gathered into small communities on the outskirts of towns and villages. And they did so because with one another they would find much needed companionship. They were able to provide mutual support for one another. Often such communities would depend upon help from relatives and friends back in the town that they've had to leave behind. Uh, there would be designated places where they would meet at a safe distance and their friends would drop off 
food, clothing, medicines. It's not at all dissimilar to some of the scenes that we've seen in our own country recently during those early months of lockdown. We learn later that at least one of these ten men was a Samaritan. Uh, the nationality of the other nine, we don't know, but at least one was a Samaritan. Uh, and Jesus is in this region of Samaria. So he was a local man in that sense, but not a Jew. The Samaritans were a group of people of mixed ethnic background. Um, they all had some Jewish ancestry, but their predecessors were amongst people of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament who intermarried with the other nations that were there in the land of Canaan. It's actually quite a, a complex and complicated history, but they became a, a recognised social and religious ethnic group in that region of Samaria in the north of Israel. The religion that they followed bore many similarities to Judaism, but the Jews totally rejected any such comparisons and treated the Samaritans with great disdain. And there was a tremendous tension and animosity between them. You'll recall the story that Jesus told, which we today know as the Good Samaritan, where Jesus, uh, in order to emphasise his point, um, forces the Jews to recognise that uh, the man who had shown mercy in the story that Jesus told was actually the Samaritan and uh, it would have been very difficult for them to uh, make that admission uh, because of this tension that existed and the fact that the Jews looked down on Samaritans. Well, that was a parable that, that Jesus told, but this is real life. Uh, and this is a, a real living Samaritan who is going to be... Uh, used in such a poignant way within this account. But of course, if you've been struck down with something like leprosy, if you now are having to live um, under these severe, really, regulations of isolation and separation from, from home, from family, from friends, from colleagues at work, Fellow lepers are your only hope of companionship. Fellow lepers are your only practical and moral support. And it's amazing what you can turn a blind eye to in those kinds of situations. So here are Jew and Samaritan living side by side. Those barriers are gone because of the affliction that they share in common. And so here are ten outcast men from who knows what background, but they're together because of the affliction that they all share.
and they've heard of Jesus. There can't be that many in the region who haven't. And they stand at an appropriate distance as they are required to do. As Jesus is approaching this unnamed village, we don't know uh, where exactly he was. But as he's about to enter, these men are as close as they can get to the village boundary. They can go no further. They're standing the appropriate distance away and they call out to Jesus. The, the Greek phrase that Luke uses, we have it translated as lifted up their voices. The two words that Luke uses in the Greek are words from which we get our word megaphone. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, they cry. Have mercy. You might be interested to know that there isn't one single incident recorded in the New Testament where someone calls out to Jesus for mercy and he either ignores them or turns them away. It never happens a single time. He always hears them. He always responds. And he still does. Jesus, please see me in my great need and deliver me. And he does. But as we progress, you'll see that it's a particular type of need that Jesus ultimately came to deal with. So these ten lepers cry out to Jesus and in verse 14 we see displayed in him an extraordinary display of grace and power. But first, just pause over the opening phrase of verse 14. Jesus saw them. It wasn't just a casual glance. He saw them. He saw them in their pitiful state. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that we have a God and Saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ who is able to sympathise with us in that whilst he remained without sin as he lived his life, he was nevertheless tempted in all points as we are. And in addition to that, he came into this world and walked amongst us and he saw firsthand the misery and anguish and despair of this broken and sinful world. And he did so as a man with the nature of a man. God is not distant, unfeeling, uncaring, unknowing. He's been here in the person of the Lord Jesus. He's walked this world in all of its brokenness, in all of its wickedness, in all of its pain and affliction. He knows how it feels. And Jesus, when he's met with such people, is moved with compassion towards them. I said this this morning, we must not confuse that spiritual freedom which may be found in Christ 
with setting people free from physical poverty or affliction or injustice. But I did also say that as believers, we are nevertheless called to treat people with kindness and mercy and justice and equity and so on. And when confronted with such need, Jesus is an example to us in being moved with compassion. But he will also show us in this story that a person's spiritual condition is of far greater concern. Jesus tells them to go back to the man who first consigned them to their life of misery. This is where reading Leviticus 13 and 14 will help you. Uh, all of the protocols concerning lepers and how they are to be dealt with are found in those two chapters in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it. It's the priest who first confirms that a man or a woman has got leprosy. And if by some means the disease goes away, it is the priest who also must confirm that they're now free from any contagion before they can go back into normal community and family life. Well, what's the priest going to do for them? What has the priest got for them as Jesus sends them back? Well, actually, the only thing that the priest has is the law. All he can do is examine them and take them back to the law of God. All he can do is go back to Leviticus and follow the instructions. If that were, happen, if that were happening today, I guess you might ex expect to see that in his office, he has a big flow chart on the wall and he, he traces his finger box by box through the various yes this way, no that way options as he reads through uh, Leviticus chapter 13. Is it this? Yes or no? Is it that? Yes or no? Next step and so on. And that's where Jesus sends them. Now on that basis, given their condition that they're in, it should be that when they get there, they're going to be examined against the law of God and they will be found still to be unclean. But when they arrive and the priest carries out the required examination, when they are examined against the law of God, they are found to be clean. Now, here's an important question. How can anyone whom the law has previously declared to be unclean be made clean? Now, physically we're talking about leprosy, but can you see the parallel? Are any of you starting to make a connection perhaps with what we've been learning from, from Galatians about those who want to try and use the law of God 
to make themselves right with God. We've been learning that the law in itself has no power. It simply exposes you either as clean or unclean. In our sin, the law of God exposes us as unclean. We are spiritually what these ten men are physically. So here's the question. How can one whom the law has previously declared to be unclean, how can they be made clean? The answer is the same whether we're talking about leprosy or whether we're talking about the state of your sinful heart. An encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ is the only thing that can change it. The only thing that can change you. The only thing that can make a difference. There is one person who can make clean that which is unclean. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. As these men went, we read, these unclean men were cleansed. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will take the filth of our sins upon himself. He will become the outcast, despised by men and forsaken by God. That we might be held up against the law of God and be found clean and declared forgiven. His death, the payment of the wages of our sins. His blood, the agent of cleansing. Do you know anything of this? And the story continues and concludes as ten become one from verse 15 to 19. All of these men had received a physical cure. But even in that state, you can still be under God's condemnation and still be heading for a lost eternity. That's the point we must not miss regarding how much effort we might put into what is loosely called social justice and how much effort we put into clear declaration of gospel truth. Yes, show compassion to the needy. Yes, be ready to confront injustice. Yes, step up and stand in for those who are being exploited. But to desire to relieve people of their earthly afflictions, that should pale into insignificance compared to the heartache that you should feel over the condition in which they will spend eternity. In the event recorded in this portion of God's word, one man, and the irony that it's a Samaritan isn't lost on anyone, one man comes back to Jesus. 
The other nine simply want to get on with the requirements that the law has of them, which will enable them to return to normality and get on with their lives. There are too many preachers today, by the way, and the Jesus they are preaching really is more or less about this same thing. That Jesus is a means of getting on in the world, a means of improving your lot, a means of improving your station and standing in the world. And many are falling for it. And my great concern and the concern of others is that far too many of them are just like these nine, making this claim. Look what Jesus has done for me. But the reality is that despite that, they remain under God's condemnation and they're heading for a lost eternity because within their soul, they still know nothing of the experience of this one Samaritan man. What goes on in the heart of this Samaritan man? Where this Samaritan man ends up, they know nothing of this, despite the experience that they have had with Jesus. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson points out that the nine at the start of the story stand far off from Christ, but finish even further away. The Samaritan, on account of his background and heritage, he began even further away from Jesus than the other nine. Yet he is the one at the end who is the closest. And where we see this Samaritan man in verse 16 is by far the most important thing. More important even than the, the good, clean skin on his body. Again, it takes us back to this morning's lesson. If the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And this man hasn't only been set free from his leprosy. This Samaritan man gets it. The enormity of what Jesus has done for him sinks in. The identity of who Jesus is sinks in. And instead of being caught up with himself and in all that he can now do, and all of the opportunities which now are open to him once more because his leprosy is gone. His thoughts are only of the man who has made all of this possible. And without whom he would still be in his former state and condition. His thoughts immediately are of Christ. He glorifies God for what God has done for him through Christ. And back to Christ he goes. He can't do anything else. He has no other thought. Once there, he falls down on his face at the feet of Jesus in thanksgiving. I've been made clean. 
And it's all because of you. And Jesus declares him to be a man whose faith has brought him into a place of salvation. That really is how we should consider that phrase, being made well. He has been saved. For nine of these men, they were glad to have met Jesus because he got rid of their leprosy. This man was glad that he'd had leprosy because it had brought him to Jesus. Those nine and this one are worlds apart. Those nine men were now without leprosy, but they were also without Christ and remained without hope. This Samaritan man saw that he was healed and he saw the healer for who he was. The requirements of the law were not his concern. Where I need to be is back with that man, Jesus. And there he is, glorifying God. And where is he doing it? At the feet of the Saviour. Is there just this foreigner? Jesus asks. What is... A Christian. Now there's many legitimate answers you could give to a question like that. But with this passage in mind, let me answer that question like this. A Christian is someone who once was far off, separated from God in the awfulness of their sin, because sin is like a corrupting contagion in the soul. A Christian is someone who knows only too well their desperate state in their sin and sees in Jesus their only hope and who cries out to him for mercy. A Christian is someone who Jesus has seen and has moved with compassion to cleanse and to heal. A Christian is someone who has received by faith the healing touch of Christ in their life. A Christian is someone who, having been healed and restored, understands the enormity of what Christ has done and is overwhelmed by the need to be in one place and one place only, glorifying God at the feet of the Saviour.